Ryan has asked me to read John 7, and in your pew Bible, it is on page 756. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come, for your time is right. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast because for me the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from, where the Christ comes. No one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowds whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the ruler, rulers of... Rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So, Steve, I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, trope that an elder should be able to preach, pray, sing, or die at a moment's notice. You came very close to having to preach at a moment's notice this morning. We, we barely escaped our neighborhood. I actually had to walk things up to our spare car that we'd parked outside of the neighborhood in order to get here. Um, Dennis did not get a ride this morning. It didn't work out for him. So, uh, uh, you came very close to hearing Steve preach with no preparation whatsoever. He's the only elder in the building. Um, do you know what an outlier is? Uh, Javin, can you put up the picture of the graph? Uh, this is a graph. A, a scientist named Ian Walter Boothroyd Thornton, there's a name for you, uh, did a study where he counted the number of mammals on islands. And he graphed this according to how large the islands were and how many species of mammals were on that island. And you can see that there's a correlation there. Uh, In general, the larger the island, the more species of mammals uh, you find on those islands. And that makes sense because more size means more habitat, uh, less direct competition, more room to spread out, that sort of thing. But if you see the arrow right there, I don't know if you can see on the line, there are three dots right on the line at the total bottom. Those are outliers. Um, when you see an outlier on a graph where otherwise it seems to have an obvious pattern, you, you can guess that something weird has happened. Uh, well, something besides land area is working on the mammal populations on these islands. Uh, and we happen to know, because if you read the rest of the paper, uh, those three dots are volcanic islands. And just before Mr. Boothroyd uh, Thornton counted, there were eruptions on those islands, and all the mammals were wiped out. So they counted way below the average, way below what you would expect. Um, all the mammals were killed. Uh, one species, actually, if you see, it says one. It actually went down to one. The reason it didn't go to zero, bats. Bats are the first things to show up on islands after they uh, are scorched clean. And you know why, right? They can cross oceans all they want to. Um, The seventh chapter of John is an outlier. 
It doesn't fit the pattern. Unlike most of the book, there's no miracles in John 7. There are no disciples in John 7. Other chapters introduce iconic characters like there's a woman caught in adultery or a man born blind or Pontius Pilate or Herod, somebody. Um, In John 7, only one other person even has a name. It refers back to Moses and David, but they're not really in the chapter. Only one one other person besides Jesus has a name. Uh, Sunday school flannel graphs do not exist for John 7. They don't make VeggieTales videos about John 7. Um, Da Vinci and Michelangelo didn't create sculptures and paintings for John 7. I looked. It doesn't exist. If you, if you, uh, Google, if you do a Google image search for John 7 paintings, the thing that pops up is a cow. And it was uh, painted by a man named something John on the 7th of October or something. And that's the only thing that shows up. Um, Songwriters don't uh, write songs about John 7. John 7 is about Jesus struggling inside himself. He's an island, and he's just been wiped out. Uh, The end of the previous chapter, chapter 6, it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus lost all his mammals, so to speak. Uh, Instead of focusing on a character today, we're going to hit two major themes Um, So unlike the last two times I preached, this time we're talking thematically. Um, We're going to talk about the meaning of community festivals, and we're going to talk about the struggle to know things. If you're the kind of person who takes notes on your insert, make two little columns for yourself. Festivals and knowing things. Um, Here's what we have done so far in John. Put up the map, Jeff. Uh, From Matthew, we know that Jesus was conceived in Nazareth. And I'm going to point, you probably can't read that, it's really tiny. It's up at the top. Jesus was conceived in Nazareth in the north. The family goes to Bethlehem near Jerusalem in the south, where he's born. After a side trip to Egypt, they go back to Nazareth in the north. Jesus grows up, goes south to Bethany and meets John the Baptist and gets his disciples. Then he goes north to Cana in Galilee, turns water into wine. South to Jerusalem, clears the money changers out of the temple with a whip and meets Nicodemus. North to Galilee, passes through Samaria, meets the woman at the well and heals the official's son. South to Jerusalem, heals the man at the Bethesda pool. He gets in trouble for that. And then north to Galilee, where he feeds the 5,000 and walks on water. Uh, This happened over a period of years in real life, but in the narrative, it's only eight pages that he's done all this. North and south, north and south. You can read it in about 20 minutes. Remember, the Bible is literature, and it uses the tools of literature. The story matters, but how the story is told also matters. Uh, John tells this story, the north and the south, in a way that makes it feel like Jesus is pacing. He's going north, he's going south, he's going north, he's going south. It's like he's trying to be in the right place at the right time, and it always seems to be where he isn't. He has to get to the next thing, get to the next thing. Uh, He thinks, I have to be where I trust people. Oh, now I have to go where the big religion happens. Now I have to go where my family is. Now I have to go there to be at the population center. Now I have to go there where I'm comfortable. Now I have to go there where I can test myself. He's back and forth, back and forth. Um, Have you ever heard the phrase, crossing over Jordan? It's what we say where so-and-so has crossed over Jordan. It means they've died. They've gone on to the new place. It's a euphemism for dying. This is Jesus pacing next to the Jordan. It's almost like he's he's looking at it. I'm going to go back and forth, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to look. He's, he's anticipating something. Uh, one thing you notice as Jesus is moving up and down the Jordan Valley 
it often coincides with cultural events. He goes to a wedding. He goes to a feast. He attends the Passover. When we get to John 10 in uh, about a month, uh, Jesus actually goes to the Hanukkah celebration in Jerusalem. Um, uh, why does God, Jesus find meaning in these cultural markers? Why do you suppose that matters to him? Um, we have many examples in the Bible of Jesus making new covenants. You know, old things have passed away. Uh, new things have come. The, the new man has replaced the old man. We know that that's true, but Jesus continues attending old festivals and parties. Why does he do that? Um, let me ask you this. Have you ever been to one of the festivals in Salem? We have so many festivals here. There's festivals at Riverfront Park. There's the State Fair. There's uh, art shows at Bush Park. You have First Wednesdays downtown in the summertime. There's Shakespeare at the Kaiser Rapids Amphitheater. Uh, have you ever been to any of those? Um, they're, they're everywhere. Um, why do we have those festivals? Is it just to make money? I know they don't make any money at the Shakespeare, at the Kaiser Rapids. We've been to that, and they don't charge anything, and you wouldn't want to pay for it. But uh, it's fun. It's, it's, a, it's a festival. And the reason we have those is not to make money. It's to build a sense of togetherness. The community improves when people feel like they're together in something. And festivals do that. So why did Jesus attend all of those festivals that he attended? Let's hold that idea for a second, and I'll come back to it. Let me write this down so I don't forget. Jesus, why festivals? Question mark. Oh, this post-it note is not sticky. There. We won't forget that. Jesus' brothers had a reason that they thought he should attend. Let's read John 7, 1 to 5. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, there's your festival, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Well, that's kind of an odd thing to say. Go, but by the way, we, we don't really believe you. Here's a couple of things you need to see. First one, verse one, Jesus actually decides he's not going. He's been to the other ones. I'm not going this time. Well, why not? Well, how is ministry going so far? Not good. You remember the chart? Jesus went down to baseline, maybe had a few bats around, but that was it. Chapter 6, almost everyone quit following him because he told them to eat his flesh. It's just a metaphor, but gross. That's not what you want to hear from somebody you're following around. In chapter 5 and chapter 7, people start planning to kill him. The ministry, for all of its early promise, wasn't going great. He wanted to avoid Jerusalem because A, he believed he still had things to do before he died, and B, he was scared. Jesus didn't go because he was scared. Um, we like to think of Jesus as the brave stoic, you know, forever standing calmly with his two fingers in the air. That is not the case. We know that when it came time for him to actually die, he was so scared that he sweat blood and he begged God to change his mind. Can't you figure out any other way to do this? Jesus was scared, and you can't really blame him. 
The second thing is, his brothers knew that his best chance to get his message out was to go where the people were. But verse 5 says they didn't believe his message. So why did they tell him to go? They were probably mocking him. Brothers mock each other. So maybe it's just kind of like a poke like that, or maybe they were just tired of him. He'd been around, you know, for two years doing ministry, and before that they'd probably heard all of his big plans. They knew, you know, what his plans were. Um, and this is, this is going to start a theme in the chapter, so let's keep a list of this. Put up the next list, Jeb. Things people didn't know. Number one, Jesus' family didn't know if he was for real. In fact, in Mark 3 it says they thought he was crazy. They tried to take him home and tie him up because they thought he was crazy. The third thing you need to know is that this was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Sukkot. The, put up the slide, Jav. Uh, it's the Feast of Booths. A tabernacle is a uh, tent or a tem- temporary hut. They weren't talking about the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God lived. They were talking about the tabernacles the people lived in, the huts, when they were in the, when they were in the desert. It reminded them of their time in the desert after they escaped Egypt. And it reminded them that despite um, the desert being pretty sketchy, God took care of them there. They also have uh, rituals with candles that symbolize the pillar of fire that they followed around. They have a ritual where they pour out water that reminds them of when they struck the rock and the water flowed out of it. Um, The Feast of Tabernacles was a parallel also to their current situation. They're still under Roman rule, and they probably felt like they were in a desert. Uh, Their status as a people was pretty flimsy, sort of like palm branch tents that they built for the feast, and they're looking for a pillar of fire. That's, That's the meaning of the festival to them. The fourth thing, Angela and I actually know a Jewish Christian rabbi who builds a booth like this every Feast of Tabernacles. Remember David? And their family eats all their meals out there during the Feast of Tabernacles, And he once made a very convincing case to us that Jesus was actually born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Pretty convincing. Um, Now, that deserves a message all its own. I'm not going to go through all the reasons that might be so. But rabbis are smarter than me, and I'm going to say, for the time being, let's say that's true. Let's say that this is actually Jesus' birthday at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's the setup. Imagine it's your birthday. It's not only your birthday because you were born on Christmas. There's a huge Christmas party in downtown Salem, and you want to go, and all your best friends are there, and they're expecting you. What do you do? Usually you'd go. Here's a problem. There are also people downtown who want to kill you. Then what do you do? Does your decision change at all? And there's another thing. This could be your last birthday party you're pretty sure you're going to die one way or another before you get to your next birthday party. It's your last chance. So does that change your decision? More and more complicated all the time. In John 7, Jesus gets stuck trying to decide what to do. Fifth thing you need to know about this, Jesus' brothers knew all of that. They were living with him. They they knew all of his all of his problems. And they effectively said, hey, birthday boy, you say you have all of these answers. Israel has become a third-rate country built out of leaves and dirt. 
We all live like outsiders. And mom is always going on about how God is going to bring down the rulers and raise up the humble. Get moving on that. You're 32 years old. It's time. If you're going to do it, do it. And Jesus makes his decision. John 7, 6 to 10. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. That's weird. Jesus makes his decision and then does the complete opposite. Here's a story. When I was a kid, every Christmas we would go to Grandma and Grandpa Cargill's house. Uh, Grandpa had strokes early in his life, and so he didn't talk that good, and he didn't move around that good, but Grandma was uh, pretty solid, pretty functional into her 80s. And uh, we kids always got up games of Trillial Pursuit. That was our thing. We played Trillial Pursuit together. All of our cousins were born in a pretty narrow window of time. Uh, And we always asked Grandma to play. Grandma, will you play with us? No, no, you go ahead. I'll stay in here with Grandpa. Or no, I have to watch dinner. You guys have fun. You go play. So we'd start the game. What singer has the given name Dino Crocetti? And from the other room, Dean Martin. Which is correct, but very annoying. When you're trying to get your pie piece, you don't want Grandma yelling the answers from the other room. So, Grandma, do you want to play? Come here and play with us. No, no, you go ahead. In which year did Jesse Owens win four Olympic gold medals? 1936! This is what Jesus is doing to his brothers. No, you go on ahead to the feast. I'll stay here with Mom. Everybody hates me anyway since they eat my flesh thing. You go, I'll be fine, I'll stay. And then he goes anyway. Is Jesus a liar? Is he tricking his brothers? What's he doing? First one said he had a reason not to go, the death threats. We're actually verified here in verse 19 that the death threats are real. Three times in the chapter, people try to seize him. The danger is very real. There's a real risk that he's going to get himself killed, and getting killed is a pretty valid reason to stay home. This will probably get me in trouble, but give me a minute to explain this. Jesus told his brothers he wasn't going to Jerusalem because it wasn't his time, and Jesus went to Jerusalem anyway because Jesus didn't know everything. He didn't necessarily know when his time was. Can you put up the slide, Jeff? Things people didn't know. Jesus didn't always know what came next. Um, Now, let me back up and assure you I'm not degrading Jesus at all. Was Jesus present in some mysterious way since the creation of the universe? Yes. John 1. We studied that together out of this series. Were Jesus and the Father one? Yes. John 10, which we're going to get to next month, same chapter as Jesus going to Hanukkah. Did Jesus bring all his knowledge with him when he became a man? No. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
Jesus gave some things up when he made himself nothing. He gave up equality and he gave up advantage. He gave up the things we normally associate with God. All the omnis, he gave up the omnis. Jesus is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. That's why he's pacing back and forth, north and south, north and south, up the Jordan Valley. Jesus is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. We're told that he's limited by people's faith. He couldn't do everything that he wanted to do because people didn't believe. Well, God isn't limited in that way, but Jesus was limited by choice. Jesus is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. When the disciples asked him when the last days would be, he says, I don't know. The Father knows. Let us sit at your right hand in heaven. Not my call. There were things Jesus didn't know. He gave up knowing everything in order to become like us. He took up the nature of a servant. And how does a servant know what to do? The master tells him. What if the master doesn't tell the servant what to do? The servant waits. The servant waits. So, Jesus wasn't wrong. He didn't say, I'm not going because of this reason. He wasn't wrong. He just didn't know. He didn't know. Uh, and that's a part of being human. See if this sounds familiar. John 2, 3 to 5. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do what he tells you. Find some wine. Well, my time has not yet come. Go to the feast. My time has not yet come. It's Jesus just not knowing yet. Not knowing yet. Ultimately, the master reveals to the servant. That brings us back to the reason attended those feasts and festivals. I didn't forget. Jesus went because he couldn't help himself. He loved people, and not just his friends. He loved the people who were trying to kill him. Jesus went to festivals because he wanted to be part of a community, just like you do at Riverfront during First Wednesday. And Jesus went because those festivals marked time. Remember, John said Jesus was around from the beginning. John 1.1. In some way, Jesus was around through every event that those festivals marked. He was in the desert. He was at the Passover. He was at the temple for the first Hanukkah. That Hanukkah is not even in the Bible. It doesn't occur. But he went to the festival to mark the occasion. I think those festivals reminded him of where he'd been. Let me tell you a story. Have you ever been crabbing in the Oregon coast? Raise your hand if you've been crabbing at the Oregon coast. That's probably a third of you. That's pretty decent. Have you ever done it off a boat? Or just off the dock? Okay, here's the procedure. You wire your bait in a trap, you tie a rope to the trap, and you tie a float to the other end of the rope. Usually you color code it. All of my floats are orange with a yellow stripe around the top or something like that. Sometimes it's a Prestone bottle. A lot of people like to use Prestone bottles because they're bright yellow. Um, and then you drop the trap in the water. Uh, after a while, you pull up the trap and see what you caught. And let me tell you a parable. My parents have a bunch of crab traps. And one day, they set up in the Sayuslaw River in Florence. They dropped their traps in. And they waited half an hour, an hour, went back and pulled them up. And they were pulling up one trap, and it was super heavy. It was really heavy. You know, you have to go hand over hand with these cold nylon ropes, and they just 
tear your hands up, but this one was super heavy, and so it was pretty hard to get up. Um, they were pulling, they're pulling, they got the trap up, and they had a few crabs in it, but there was an old rope wrapped around that trap. It was all covered with barnacles and algae. It had been in the water a long time. Well, what do you do with that extra rope? If you're the kind of person who cuts the rope, we cannot be friends. You pull the rope up. You find out what's on the other end of that rope. So they pull that, that rope. They pull, they pull, they pull, and there's another crab trap on the end of it. Someone had dropped their trap. Their float came off, and this trap stayed at the bottom of the river going back and forth in the tide for years. It was crammed full of giant crabs. It was a box-type trap, not, the kind, not a ring, but a box where the crabs could get in, but they couldn't get out. And so these crabs had been inside this trap probably for years, just eating whatever was in the river and growing and growing and growing, and now it was full. What do crabs do as they age and grow? Put up the uh, slide, Joe. This is a Dungeness crab, and he's grown too big for his shell. So the back of the carapace pops open, and he shoots out backwards, and that's him at the end sitting in front of a shell that's already too small. It's smaller than what he is. So not only were there giant crabs in this trap, but all of the old shells were crammed inside this trap with them. They could barely move. They were so tight in there. All of their old selves were left behind, reminding them every day, here's where you were. Here's where you were. Here's where you were. The parable breaks down a little. Jesus was not trapped, obviously. He chose to be there. And crabs get no benefit from reminders of the past. But Jesus is in a new situation. He's in a place where he didn't always know what was happening next. By going to Hanukkah, the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Passover, he was reminded of what already happened. He's there with his old shell. I remember being here. I remember doing this. I know what this means. Even if he was taking things in a new direction, that knowledge had to be comforting because he didn't always know what was happening next, but he knew where he'd been. He loved the reminder. And now things going, with things going pretty poorly, that probably is even more comforting to him. So Jesus goes. Happy birthday. Happy Feast of Tabernacles. The family doesn't know if he's for real. Jesus doesn't know what his next step is. And at the feast, he interacts with four groups of people. Very few individuals, but groups of people. Every group seems to have something that they don't know. Everybody is still trying. Two years later of him tramping up and down, they're still trying to get a handle on Jesus. Before Jesus shows up, we get to hear from a group of people called the Jews. This is in John 7:11. Now, at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Put up the list, Jab. This is religious leadership, probably Sanhedrin, the temple priests. Um, the leadership didn't know where he was. And really what they meant, next slide, they didn't know what he was up to. Where is that guy? It sounds like they're suspecting that he was planning shenanigans. He always seems to show up and cause trouble, tear the temple down or heal people when he's not supposed to. He's planning shenanigans. Well, we know Jesus wasn't even planning on going. He had no shenanigans in mind. He wanted to stay home. He was scared. But he went anyway, and the Jews found him, John 7, 14 and 15. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. 
The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Next slide. They didn't know a person could learn about God outside the official program. They all learned by studying under the masters, by somebody older, wiser, who knew the, the Tanakh, telling them what it meant. There's a tradition of rabbinical training, training like that in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, when we meet Paul, he says he studied, studied under Gamaliel, um, who, quote, this is according to Paul, taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. Well, Gamaliel is in Jerusalem right now. He's at, probably at this feast. And probably Paul is there too. He's learning from Gamaliel. He's learning in this rabbinic tradition. But Jesus didn't do that. How does he know these things? He's never studied in our school. We'd have seen him. There's a way to learn, and Jesus didn't meet those expectations. Okay, there's a second group of people that Jesus runs into at the feast called the crowd. And they heard him speaking too. This is John 7, 12, and 13. We'll back up just a little. Among the crowd... There was a widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. And others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Uh, The crowd didn't know if Jesus was good or if he was a deceiver. Remember, two years of teaching. Jesus shows up at the festivals, says things in the temple, says things in their synagogues. Uh, They had been watching him teach. They had watching him deal with the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And they still didn't know if he had anything useful to say. He's a good man. No, he's a liar. They were still trying to figure this out. And that must have been really encouraging, I'm sure, to Jesus, having spent his time and had death threats against him, that nobody knows if he's any good. Jesus speaks to them anyway, and he tells them to test him. This is John seven sixteen to 17. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So, do what God asks. You'll know. The crowd's not impressed with that explanation. John 7, 20. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? They They don't like the idea that if they do what God says, they'll know what Jesus is. No, you're full of demons. So, the crowd didn't know he was from the God or the devil. You're full of demons. And the next thing the crowd doesn't know, they didn't know how dangerous Jesus was. Who's trying to kill, who would try to kill you? You're, you don't know anything. Some of the leadership had been plotting to kill Jesus for a year, since chapter 5. That's how dangerous he was to the cultural order, and that's how little the Sanhedrin was sharing with the crowd. There's another group that he runs into called Some of the People. Now, that might not seem much different on the face of it from the label, the crowd, but uh, this is a somewhat smaller group, and they couldn't quite dismiss what they were seeing. They couldn't listen to Jesus and say, oh, he's full of demons, oh, or he's just a liar. They couldn't quite get themselves to that point. They knew there was something more to it, even if popular opinion was against him. Also, they did know that the Sanhedrin was trying to kill Jesus, and so they were paying closer attention than the crowd. Remember, so they're probably a little more noble-minded, maybe a little more paying attention to what's going on. 
John 7, 25 to 27. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? See, they knew. Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded he's the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. They didn't know what the leaders thought of Jesus in a different way. The crowd didn't know because they didn't know that the leaders were trying to kill him. Some, these, some of the people, this smaller group, they didn't know what the leadership said because they knew that they said they were going to kill him, but they're not killing him. They're, they're waiting to find out what does the leadership really think of this guy? On the one hand, they're trying to kill him, but they haven't. Maybe they think he's the Messiah. The other thing that some of the people didn't know, they didn't know the Messiah would seem so ordinary. This guy, he's from Nazareth. He hangs out with his fishing buddies. Isn't the Messiah supposed to be this mystery man who comes out of a cave, out of the foggy, with a fog machine, where we don't know where he's come from? Nobody's going to know where the Messiah comes from. Maybe he's the real deal. They're unsure, but they're paying attention. Like Jesus, they weren't exactly wrong, they just didn't know. So the Pharisees try to seize Jesus and they fail. He speaks more and more loudly. It says in the beginning he speaks, later on he cries, and at the end he shouts with a loud voice. So as the, as the feast goes on, Jesus is talking with louder and louder. Um, he's either not scared anymore or he decides, well, <laughs> if they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me. I better say what I have to say. People still can't agree about, about Jesus. John 7, 40 to 42. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, well, he's the Christ. Others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Doesn't this, does the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem? He's from the wrong place. He's from Nazareth, right? Nobody asked him, by the way. No one asked. On his birthday, nobody asked him, where were you born? He was born in the right place. Verse 32, the Pharisees send the temple guards to arrest him. This is the fourth group of people that Jesus sees, the temple guards. The Pharisees are done. They send in the SWAT team. And I should probably say, remind you that there are 7,000 Pharisees in Jerusalem. 7,000 people didn't gather together and say, temple guards, go get him. It was probably the small group, the, the Pharisees who were in the Sanhedrin, the ones who were really in charge of things. So the temple guards show up back in 1 Chronicles 26. You don't have to look this up. This is where the temple guards come from. Temple guardianship was a family job. It was assigned according to what family you were in. It had ancestral meaning to it. They were in charge of protecting the temple treasure and protecting the temple gates. Keep the valuable things safe and keep the riffraff out. That, that's a summary of what they were supposed to do. So the Pharisees send them to arrest Jesus in order to keep the valuable things safe, and keep the riffraff out. Remember when I said Jesus was dangerous? Jesus was the riffraff. Keep him out. He was a threat to the value of the temple. They go to arrest him. The temple guards go, and Jesus talks. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Streams of living water will flow from him. Remember the ceremony I talked about where they would pour out water to remember the living water coming out of the stone? Jesus is saying, it's me. That's me, what you're doing right there. 
you're pouring the water out, come to me. I'll give you streams of living water. Here we go. This is my favorite part of the whole chapter. In fact, someday I'm going to write an entire sermon, I've promised myself, on these two verses. Chapter 7, 45 and 46. The temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. I love that. Their duties are to protect the temple treasure and keep out the rabble. No one ever spoke the way this man does. For a thousand years, their families have served in the temple, hearing the greatest teachers the nation had to offer. No one ever spoke the way this man does. They were standing in front of the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, people who taught and argued religion for a living, and they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Temple guards didn't know why no one ever told them the things Jesus told them. Why didn't someone tell us? Not the priest, not the Sanhedrin, nobody. The implied question is, where have you been? Aren't you supposed to be in charge? He didn't study here or we would have seen him. This is our, we stand here and we watch. We would have seen him if he had studied here. But he says these things and you don't. We couldn't arrest him. He belongs here. People of John 7 are undecided. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know where he comes from. They don't know why the Pharisees want to kill him or if the Pharisees want to kill him. They don't know if Jesus is a liar or a prophet or so totally ordinary that he's boring. They don't know if his words are dangerous, ridiculous, or the greatest things ever spoken aloud. The whole feast is in tumult. And here at the very end of the chapter, an old friend shows up. Remember Nicodemus from chapter 3? You know, that was two years ago. Four chapters, but two years ago is the last time we saw Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He knew that the safety found in his structured life wasn't what he needed most, so he snuck out and asked Jesus questions in the middle of the night. I pointed out that Jesus is the first person named in chapter 7 in verse 1. Nicodemus is the second one in verse 50. John 7, 50 and 51. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Hear him. Find out what he's doing. Yes, he's been teaching here through the whole festival and for two years before that. Let's hear more. That's almost never bad advice. Uh, two things. How to find out what Jesus is doing. First, listen. And second, listen some more. When I was preparing this sermon, I dug out all my old notes because I've taught through John several times. Um, I found sets of notes from John 7 from three separate times I've taught it over the last 15 years. None of them had the same subject matter. They weren't the same at all. They weren't even close, in fact. Each time I read it from scratch, I got a different thing from it. And I even realized that on some of the things in my old notes, I'd changed my mind on. Like, ooh, did I really say that out loud to somebody? I hope they didn't remember it. And that brings us to our first takeaway. First of all, listen and listen some more. I can guarantee you, you have not theologically arrived. 
No one ever arrives. The things you believe about God, the church, heaven, hell, the devil, and Jesus are incomplete at best. You have more to learn. Uh, I taught through John, this is the fourth time in the last 20 years, and I can't even nail the topic of the chapter down. I can't say, okay, John 7, I know what that's about. I have to read it, and I'm like, ooh, this is what it's about now. This is what it means to me right now. I might do this again in five years and have something totally different that comes out of it. And don't just expect to add to what you know. Be ready to change what you think. The second thing, be ready, even eager, to change your mind. Uh, Our family is uh, full of science nerds. You might already know this. And we have had it pounded into us that everything we think we know is always open to challenge, even if it's been thought of and evidence has come up for years and years and centuries, it's open to challenge because that's how science works, through challenge. You don't follow the proof because there is no proof in science, you follow evidence. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, of Isaac Asimov and the relativity of wrong. This is a, a famous story he tells where he describes the shape of the earth and how people have always been wrong about the shape of the earth, but usually they're just a little less wrong as time goes along. At first, people thought the earth was flat, which was wrong. The earth isn't flat. But you know what? Standing right here or in a big field, it's not that wrong. You can see 20 miles if, uh, if there's no obstructions. All around you, it seems it's pretty flat. And the, the thing is, the earth curves, but it curves so slowly that for somebody using ancient tools, it's pretty flat. Well, eventually, they determine it is not flat. It's actually spherical. It's uh, a very large sphere. In fact, uh, over 2,000 years ago, they calculated the, uh, the size of the earth to within, I think, about 5% of the real measurement using shadows, a stick shadow here and a stick shadow hundreds of miles away. They measured the angles and figured out how big the sphere was. So the earth was spherical. That was less wrong than the earth being flat. But you know what? The earth isn't spherical either. The earth spins on its axis, and it makes things push out at the equator, and it squishes down at the poles. So it's actually bigger around this way than it is around this way. It's an oblate spheroid is what's that called, what that's called. And so that is way less wrong than it being spherical and way, way less wrong than it being flat. But the earth isn't really an oblate spheroid either because they've determined through gravitational metric, gravimetrics and measurements of density of the Earth that were actually bottom-heavy. The southern hemisphere is a little bigger than the northern hemisphere. It's almost like a pear. And so being flat was pretty wrong, but not, you know, pretty close. And spherical was a little less wrong. And oblate spheroid is a little less wrong than that. And now pear-shaped is a little less wrong than that. Well, they're still figuring things out. But the idea is you learn, and, and you just find out the next thing. How much closer can I get? Learning about Jesus is like that. You're, you're never going to arrive at the final answer. You continue to learn, and you keep your mind open to change when you need to. You act on what Jesus is teaching you. Don't be afraid to do that. But when you get more evidence 
or if you read something in a new way because you're teaching it for the fourth time, or if you're older or you're wiser or your life has changed, grab a hold of that change that you now understand. God is the same. Let's get this clear. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You change. You change. So you should allow your mind to change. Last thing, attach yourself to the community you live in. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if you're friends with Katie on Facebook. Last week, we can, Katie's not here, so we can talk about her. Last week, Katie walked from her house, which is about six blocks that way, down Edgewater, across the pedestrian bridge, through downtown, and past the public library to get to work. It was 25 degrees out and snowing. And afterwards, she posted pictures of her walk and explained how beautiful it was. That is attaching yourself to a community. In the walking, Jesus, or Jesus, don't tell Katie I called her Jesus. In the walking, Katie put herself right in the thick of Salem's humanity. She attached herself. We should all be attaching ourselves to the community we live in. It doesn't mean you have to walk through the snow for 10 miles, but you have to. You have to be with the people in your community and not just your safe friends in the church building. The Bible does say, come apart and be separate, but that means be separate in your selflessness, and you're willing to follow the God who emptied himself. That's how you're separate, because you're different. Be different in that way. But in between his solitary times of reflection, Jesus buried himself in his family, in his festivals, in the parties. He embraced the Jordan Valley. And it's a coincidence, though maybe not such a coincidence, we have a valley, and it's full of festivals. And it's full of people attending those festivals. And we live in a city named after Jerusalem. So go where the people are, because Jesus is found in those people. So let's pray, and then the dice are going to come up and light the Advent candle. God, thank you so much for um, uh, sending your son. Thank you for this season where we can remember him, for this festival of remembering him. Uh, Thank you, God, for... Jesus' example of going even when he felt fear, and I pray that uh, as we continue to listen, as we continue to read, and we continue to grow, that we will be changed. Um, We have faith that you do not change, but we know that we will, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Amen.